0: Good to start the new year in the house of the Lord, isn't it? The Lord is kind of funny sometimes. Um, Just just the way he coordinates things. This Mother's Day last year, um, it just happened on Mother's Day that we were teaching through 1 Peter chapter 3, where it was talking about the... uh, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men and kind of scholars believe that it was talking about demonic entities having intercourse with human women and this demonic offspring on Mother's Day. It's like, like you couldn't have picked a weirder topic for Mother's Day. And um, this morning as we get into the text, it's another interesting coincidence that we find ourselves in. As we move into Judges chapter 11, as you'll see in a couple minutes, um, let's pray before we get started. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we, um, as we get into Judges chapter 11 this morning, that you will that you'll meet us. Admittedly, this is a, it's a bizarre text. There's some weird stuff going on here, Lord. But we pray that you would help us to see your hand in it and that we would see what you have for us, the lessons you want us to learn and how we can apply them to our lives, Lord. Again, we just pray that you would be in our midst this morning. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we will be moving fairly quick through Judges chapter 11 and chapter 12. And primarily, we're going to be looking at the life and times, sort of the... the um, high and low points, of this man, this judge by the name of Jephthah. Now, you remember that in the context of the book of Judges, judge doesn't necessarily mean judge in the judicial sense, but a judge in this context was a a military leader. So we're going to look at the life of this military leader, Jephthah, and see what lessons we can glean from his life. And I'm just going to kind of state up front that this passage we're looking at this morning isn't the same passage that they're teaching over in Sunday school today, right? This isn't a passage that translates well to the flannel graph board, right? Nobody has made a VeggieTune, VeggieTales movie about Judges chapter 11, right? It's, it's weird, it starts out in verse one. Now Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So we find this man, Jephthah, and we learn that he is a mighty warrior. Right Right away, we learn something important about him. Right, some of the judges like Gideon that God raises up, they are kind of just nobodies who God empowers. Jephthah is a little different in that he's already a mighty warrior. God lays hold of this man who already has these talents and this and this skill set, and um, and we see that he is a he's a man of war. Right? Jephthah is a warfighter. He's a, he's a bad dude. It says, but he was the son of a prostitute. Now, in our culture, I don't think that we... We don't really put a lot of weight on our family tree, right? We don't put a lot of weight on our, on our family name. And there really isn't a lot of stigma today if you are born out of wedlock. But in that day, your family name, your family line, your genealogy, that was everything. And Jephthah (coughs) being born of a prostitute, that put a major blemish on his name. See, we learned that that Jephthah's dad, Gilead, he also had a wife, at least one, and he had sons with his legitimate wife. And those kids, those boys, they had a name. They had honor. They had a legacy. They had genealogy. And as those kids began to grow up, They they came to to scorn this Jephthah. They began to to look down on him. And eventually, all of their scorn and all of their harassment and all of their their persecution, it, it drove this poor boy away. Now keep in mind that at this point, this boy, he had done nothing wrong. Right? He couldn't control who his mom and dad were. But it seems like these brothers, it kind of seems like they were entitled little, little brats, doesn't it? Right? And, and, they, and they told them, you're going to have no part in our dad's inheritance. And you're not going to carry on the family name. You're not going to be a part of this house. You're not a real son. So Jephthah, he runs away. It says that he goes out into the wilderness, into the what really would have been the badlands, what would have been the, the wild west of, of Israel. And there's no indication of how old he was at this point. But I have to think that he was pretty young. Right? It seems like he was an adolescent at this point. And in my mind's eye, I imagine him 12, 13, 14 years old at this point. And he goes out into the wilderness. And he begins living off the land. And he survives. And this Jephthah, he gets real tough, real fast. And as time goes on, Jephthah begins to sort of make a name for himself. And other outcasts, they start to gather around him. They they band together. And scripture notes, it says that they were worthless fellows or vain men. And it says that they went out with him. So just to be clear what's going on here, Jephthah, he forms a gang. Right? He becomes a gang leader. Right? Most likely these are highwaymen. These are, <clears throat> these are banditos. Right? They're out roaming the land. And probably similar to 1 Samuel chapter 25, with David and his band of men. And we don't know any specifics. It's just speculation. But it seems likely that they operated sort of as, as like mercenaries. They would offer protection to local villages and local towns. Right, and that sounds kind of mobbish, doesn't it? You, know, you pay us and we'll give you, we'll give you protection. Right? And, and possibly they went across the border into the Ammonite towns and villages and raided there. And maybe they were criminals, maybe they weren't, but they were definitely ruffians, right? This was a rough company. This was rough men living in a rough land, leading rough lives. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, verse 4. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went up to Jephthah to the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. So this is interesting, isn't it? The Ammonites begin to make trouble for the people of Israel, right? And they begin to find victory against the Israelites. And so the leaders, they get together in their little war room and they say, you know what? We need to find somebody who can lead us into battle. We need to find somebody with some combat experience. We need to find somebody with some leadership experience. We need somebody with a very specific skill set. And somebody says, hey, remember that? That military contractor outfit out there in Tobe? Remember all those outcasts? They, <coughs> they formed that pretty effective fighting force Uh, Who was their leader again? And somebody says, oh, remember it was was that boy Gilead had with what's her name? And one guy kind of probably shamefully raises his hand. His name is Jephthah. He's my brother. We we drove him out. Well, let's go ask him if, if he's willing to lead us. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the leaders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? Jephthah says, well, well, well. How the turntables? That's a little, some of you guys got that reference. Some of you didn't. (laughs) Um, He says, well, look. You guys all hated me. Remember who I used to always taunt me and, oh, we know who your mama is. Jephthah, Jephthah, get out the door. Jephthah, Jephthah, your mama is a Woman of ill repute. Um, (laughs) What'd you think I was gonna say? Jephthah says, you mocked me. You drove me away. And now, now that you need me, you come crawling out here to Tob. Why should I help you guys? Why are you even here, he says. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, verse eight, that is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. They say, here's the deal, Jephthah. We want you to lead us in this military campaign. And if you win, we want to make you our leader. We want you to rule over our tribe. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. He says, let me get this straight. If I lead you into victory... You're gonna make me your leader. Me, the one who you scorned all those years ago. Me, the one, <coughs> the one who you chased out of town like a like a three-legged dog. Now, now you want me to lead you. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as we say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. They say, look, the Lord is our witness, Jephthah. We want to make you our Jephthah, he acquiesces here. He says, okay, I'll do it. So they go to this place called Mizpah. And you may remember Mizpah, it comes up a lot in scripture. It's the place where where Jacob and Laban first came to their agreement and they made their covenant before the Lord. And this word Mizpah, it means to watch. As in the Lord is watching. As in Lord, if you do wrong and you break your word, the Lord will avenge me. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? So Jephthah, when he comes to power, he doesn't immediately send out his force recon guys, right? He doesn't immediately send out his special operations teams. First, he sends out an envoy and he he tries diplomacy. He goes to the king, he says, look, we're here just trying to live our lives. Why are you attacking us? Let's see if we can't come to an agreement. Let's see if we can't come to an arrangement before heads start rolling. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. He said, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land, from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Several hundred years previous to this, as we'll see in a minute, Israel had acquired some of the land of the Ammonites. So the king says, look, if you'll just give us back our land, give us back the land that you stole when you arrived from Egypt, there'll be peace. But that's never really how it works, is it? Right? If somebody's attacking you and they say, we'll quit attacking you if you give us this and you give it to them, what happens? They always want a little bit more, right? A little bit more, a little bit more. And so Jephthah here, he realizes that this naked aggression, it needs to be put in check. And I'm not going to read all of verses 14 through 20, but Jephthah basically gives the Ammonite king a history lesson. And he says, look, when Remember way back when, when we were heading from Egypt to Canaan, our, our people were approaching, and we sent people ahead, we asked, can we just pass through your land? We don't want any trouble. He says, but you remember what happened. You guys wouldn't let us pass through. Instead, you attacked us, and you lost. In verse 21, and the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country, and they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. are you to take possession of them? It reminds me a little bit of some of the modern conflicts in Israel, right? You may remember in, I think it was May 14th, 1948, Israel, after almost 2,000 years, becomes a nation again. And from, from the moment of its inception, the countries around it were constantly pushing in on it, constantly trying to, basically to destroy it. And they're always being oppressed. They're always being harassed. And Israel had no issues with the people around them. They were willing to live in peace. But the Arab nations around them were not willing to let Israel exist. And so issues or happenings are building. In June of 1967, there's what's referred to as the Six-Day War. And in the Six-Day War, Egypt... Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, the powerhouse nations there, they all kind of sprung this trap on Israel, this surprise attack. And they attacked, and Israel was, was vastly outnumbered. Israel was vastly outgunned. Most of the Arab nations, they had the most modern Soviet weapons of the time. And Israel had a bunch of old French fighter jets and some old British guns, vastly outgunned. And against all odds, Israel drove back those five nations. And in the course of that, guess what happened? The, the, their land holding quadrupled. Over the course of this, they took back the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They took back the Golan Heights. And now all those nations who lost all that territory, you know, they complain. Oh, we were wrong. Oh, we deserve to get our land back. Oh, woe is me. And what was their whole point in that war? They wanted to destroy Israel, right? They wanted to annihilate Israel. And they lost, and they lost a whole bunch of land. And now they're crying that they want it back. But guess what? That's not how it works, is it? That's not how it works in warfare. That's not how it works in the real world, right? If you lose a battle and you lose land, it belongs to the other guy. And that's exactly what happened here in Judges chapter 11. And so Jephthah, he's being diplomatic, and he says, look, the Lord, he gave us this land in war. He gave us the victory, and we, 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 we took this as our territory. He says, you want it back? Malone labe, boys. Come and take it. You want it back? Come try to get it. In verse 24, he says, will you not possess... What Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess, and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. He says, Look, here's the deal. You keep what your God, Chemosh, gives you, and we're gonna keep what our God, Jehovah, gives us. Right? And it's a little jab, right? He says, Let's put it to the test. Let's go to war then. He says, whatever your God wins for you, you get to keep. Whatever our God wins for us, we keep. Does that sound good? It, it, it's kind of dirty hairy ish a little bit. It's like you've got to ask yourself one question Do you feel lucky? Well, do you? Right? That's kind of like, that's kind of what's going on here. And verse 25, he says, Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and the Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? you've had 300 years to deal with this. I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. The king of Ammon here, he, he wouldn't listen to reason. And so war ended up being the only other recourse. And and I think that that's the sad reality sometimes, right? War, fighting, conflict should be avoided as much as possible. But sometimes it's unavoidable. I mean, I think as Christians... In regards to war, we should be pacifists as much as is possible, right? War is tragic. The human cost is tragic. So I, I think in our heart, we wanna see peace, but we're also realists. And we realize that while we always seek to avoid conflict, sometimes there's no other solution, right? Sometimes, sadly, Violence and overwhelming force is, is the only solution. Sometimes it's peace through superior firepower, right? right? That, that's the only way peace can be achieved. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through on to Mizpah of Gilead. <coughs> And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return and peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. And the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities. And as far as Abel, Karim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So Jephthah, he heads out to battle. He heads out to do battle against the people of, of Ammon, And it says that the spirit comes upon him. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit here. Now remember, in the Old Testament, people, the followers of God, didn't have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that Christians have today. Right, They didn't have the Holy Spirit residing within them. That didn't happen until after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When we see the Holy Spirit come upon people in the Old Testament, it was for a specific purpose, and it was a temporary condition. This, this empowering of the Holy Spirit, it was temporary. And the Holy Spirit, he comes upon Jephthah, as they're traveling to the battlefield. And on the way, Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. He says, listen, Lord, if you'll give me victory, if you will but help me win this battle, when I get home, he says in verse 31, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah goes on and he wins this great victory. It says that he struck them with a great blow and he subdued the Ammonites. And so far, things are going pretty well for Jephthah, aren't they? Right? He was an outcast, he was an orphan, right? He was a mercenary. And what happens? He gets elected mayor. By the very people who rejected him. He wins this great victory. He's sort of walking home, taking this little victory lap, right? Just kind of enjoying the moment. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Now, those of you guys who are parents, and you kind of get this, right? There is, there's nothing better than when I've been away and I come home and my kids come running out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. You know, Hannah's been doing this thing recently where she, uh, she's kind of dramatic about it, but she comes running out and she latches onto my leg and she looks up at me and she says, Daddy, I love you. And it's just so sweet. Right? It just just melts your heart. And Jephthah's daughter here, his only child, right, notes that he has no other sons or daughters. She comes running out. And you can imagine that she is his pride and joy. And we don't know how old she is at this point. We know that she's not married yet, as we'll see later in the text. So it's likely that she's not yet into her mid to late teens because most girls will be married by that point. But we see that she is old enough to go camping by herself. Again, we'll see that in a moment. So she's not a young child. She's probably 12, 13, 14-ish. And she comes rolling out. She's daddy, daddy. And she's dancing and she's singing and she's, she's playing the tambourine. It's a sweet scene. She's rejoicing that her, her dad is returning home from war and that he's returning in victory. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. Now, did she was she the cause? No, she wasn't the cause at all, was she? for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. So Jephthah, he sees his little girl come out dancing and his heart breaks within him. It says that he tears his clothes. And in that day, in that culture, that was a sign of, of great mourning and of great anguish. And he says, you have brought me low, sweetheart you have become a source of great trouble. Why? Well, remember back in verse 31, right? He says, Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah had vowed to offer the first thing that he saw to the Lord, undoubtedly thinking he was going to see a goat or a lamb, or a chicken, or something. And he certainly wasn't expecting his baby girl to come out. And so he's in anguish here. And she says to him, verse 36, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and she wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, She returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. What just happened? Were you tracking there? She says, listen, Dad. You opened your mouth to the Lord. You opened your big mouth. Now you need to keep your vow to the Lord. You need to do what you promised to do. Here's what I ask. Give me two months. Let me and my gal pals go on a camping trip. We're going to go to the mountains for a couple months and weep for my virginity. (coughs) And he says, okay. She goes away and weeps for her virginity. She wept that she never got to get married, that she never had any kids, that she was never able to raise a family. And then it says after two months, she came home and her dad fulfilled the vow that he had made to the Lord. And it says it became a custom in Israel that every year the girls would go up for four days and lament the daughter of Jephthah. That seems pretty extreme, doesn't it? It seems pretty hardcore. He promises to sacrifice the first thing that he sees. And his daughter is the first thing that he sees. So he takes her and offers her as a sacrifice to the Lord. It seems like he made an unwise vow, an unwise resolution, if you will. A lot of us are making resolutions this time of year, aren't we? And it seems like he didn't really think it all the way through. And and I think sometimes we can be the same way. We make these resolutions at this time of year, right? Oh, I'm gonna eat cleaner, or I'm gonna exercise more or I'm going to spend more time with the people I love, or I'm going to read more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And usually those very noble resolutions last all the way till January 11th. Then all of a sudden, reality creeps in, right? And oftentimes, we make spiritual resolutions as well. Oftentimes, we make promises and vows to the Lord. Lord, I, I promise this year I'm going to read my Bible every day. Lord, I promise this year I'm going to give consistently. Lord, I promise this year I'm going to serve in the children's ministry. Lord, if, if you get me out of this situation that I'm in, I promise that I will blank, blank, blank. Right, And, and all of those vows, they're, they're made with good intentions. Right, the heart of the vow was good. But so often we don't follow through. We don't keep our promises to God. And I think that God takes that seriously. And I think Jephthah understood the sanctity of making vows before the Lord. David writes in Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? who shall dwell on your holy hill? He says, who's going to dwell with you, Lord? He said, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. David says, who is going to dwell with the Lord? And he gives a list of people. He says, those who walk blamelessly, those who walk upright, who do what's right, those who speak the truth, those who don't slander, those who don't do evil. And the last thing he says there in verse four, he who walks, he who swears to his own hurt, and does not change. He says, God honors those who make a commitment And then keep their commitment even when circumstances change. Who keep a commitment even when it hurts. And frankly, that's tough, isn't it? It's easy to keep commitments when they're easy to keep. right? It's easy to keep your commitments when life isn't throwing you curveballs but it's a lot harder to keep your commitments, to keep your vows to the Lord when life starts to fall apart, when your relationships sour, when the economy changes, when all these things starts to happen. And scripture says the Lord blesses those who keep their commitments to him. And Jephthah kept his commitment to the Lord. But does that mean that he sacrificed his daughter? Is that what actually happened here? Now, upon just a simple, plain reading of it, it does seem like that's what happened, right? And scholars and commentators, they're pretty equally split on what actually happened here. Some scholars, some commentators, believe that he did exactly what it seems like it implies that he did, that he sacrificed his daughter to the Lord, that he slaughtered her, and that he offered her up as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. But there are some scholars, both Jewish rabbis and great Christian thinkers from the past and present who hold a different interpretation of what happened. And so I'm gonna unpack this for a couple minutes. I kind of give you a little different scenario. Now, no one on either side of the argument is arguing that Jephthah didn't make his vow in, in poor judgment. But as we examine the text in detail, there are were, there were a couple of, uh, of things that emerge that might give us a different outcome. Let's look at verse 31 again. Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's and... I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, when he says the doors of my house, that's kind of an interesting phrase because that word door, it can mean door, like the door to your house, but it can also mean sort of like the the gate of an enclosure. And further, that word house, it can also mean an enclosure or, or an abode of animals. So it's clear that Jephthah is initially thinking that it's an animal that's gonna come out that he's gonna sacrifice. He isn't thinking that his daughter is gonna come out. He's thinking about a sheep, a goat, a lamb, or a cow. In fact, we see that he is shocked at the sight of his daughter. It's not what he expected to see. And note what the text says. It says, whatever I see, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And this whole argument here, it hinges on the word and there in our English text. Because according to the Hebrew grammar that's at play here, that word and could just as easily and just as correctly be translated or. So you see the difference there? Right, that totally changes the meaning. It goes from, it will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it to it will be the Lord's or I will sacrifice it. Right, that's a huge difference. And we'll unpack that a little more in a moment. Look at verse 40. It says, the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Again, this word lament, this Hebrew word here, almost everywhere else the word is used, it means to, to commemorate or to celebrate. So here's the scenario that's proposed. Jephthah, when he made this vow to the Lord, he said, I will either give whatever I see to the Lord, or I will offer it as a sacrifice. And since it was his daughter that he saw, he opted for the first option, that he was going to give his daughter to the Lord, that he was going to make an offering. And this was a common practice in the Old Testament. Back in Leviticus chapter 27, a person could vow themselves to the Lord. Or a person could vow a, a family member to the Lord. And then according to Old Testament tradition, that person could then purchase, redeem that person back from that vow. And it was largely a, a ceremonial act. And some would believe that that Jephthah vowed his daughter to the Lord in this sense, and that he dedicated her to to serve in the tabernacle, and he left her there in permanent service to the Lord. And we see in Exodus chapter 38, and again in 1 Samuel chapter 2, that this was a a common practice among women, usually widows who, who served in the tabernacle. It was sort of like almost an an Old Testament nunnery. And David Guzik notes that, again, typically these were older women, and so they were referred to as the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meaning. They were very literal, right? not very creative in their naming. But it's thought that he dedicated his daughter to served there in the tabernacle. And that makes sense, again, according to the sort of the context of the scripture here. right? His daughter and her friends were grieved. But why does it say in the text that they were grieved? Does it say that, that they grieved because she was about to be sacrificed on the altar? What does it say? They were grieved because of her virginity. They were grieved that she wasn't going to have a family, that she wasn't going to have kids, that she wasn't going to live out her life. Further, you know, we see Japheth here, and he is grieving. But his grief, it doesn't fit really with the grief of one who's about to sacrifice his daughter. His grief seems to be more from the fact that, remember, he was an illegitimate son. And finally, he had redeemed his family name, right? Finally, he's going to have a legacy to pass on. But what does it note in the the, um, verses? That he only had one child. He only had one option to carry out his family name, to carry out his family legacy. And again, that was a big thing. And now he's not able to do that because his daughter can't have kids because he, he made a vow to dedicate her to the Lord, right? And so all that, it seems to fit pretty well into the evidence that he dedicated her, not sacrificed her. And I think there's one more point to consider. I'm going to read a couple of verses from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer. Leviticus 18:21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane them. So profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, you may or may not know when the people would offer their children to Molech, what they would do is they would offer them as a burnt sacrifice to this false God. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So it's very clear in the Old Testament that anyone who commits human sacrifice, particularly sacrifices their own children, does an abominable thing to the Lord, right? And it seems like, well, Duh. Of course that's terrible, right? But it's a very common practice among the pagans of those days. What do we find in Hebrews chapter 11? Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, it's often referred to as, as the hall of faith, right? In Hebrews chapter 11, probably Paul he lists out all of the great players of the Old Testament, all of the great men and women of faith, and only a select few make the cut. And guess who makes the cut as a great man of faith in Hebrews eleven thirty two? Our man Jephthah here. Does it seem likely that if he had sacrificed? his daughter on the altar and committed a great abomination before the Lord that he would have been commended to the hall of faith? It doesn't seem like it. And for all those reasons, I lean towards the second interpretation that he dedicated his daughter to service at the tabernacle rather than actually right? Sacrificer and burnt her on the altar. Am I certain? No. But it does seem like it fits better with the text, with the culture, and with the heart of God. Chapter 12 is sort of an addendum, and we're going to just brush through it really quick. I'm not even going to read, I'm just going to kind of summarize it real quick. After Jephthah gets back in this great victory, The men of Ephraim, they hear about the battle and they get all worked up and they say, how come, how come you didn't call us to help you in the battle? How come you stole all the glory? And Jephthah says, well, actually, I did call you guys and you didn't come. So I took matters into my own hands and the Lord gave me the victory. So he says to him, why are you here disputing with me on this day? And over the course of this engagement, the men of Gilead and the men of Ephraim, they go to war against each other. And this this civil war happens, Israelite against Israelite. And it ends up that Jephthah defeated the men of Ephraim. And as they were retreating, the men of Jephthah blocked the path of retreat at the Jordan River. The men of Jordan said, hey, where are you guys from? And the men of Ephraim, they, you know, they were all Israelites. And so they tried to lie. They said, oh yeah, we're on your side. Right? Remember, this is a civil war, but it wasn't blue and gray. Right? They all spoke the same language. They dressed the same. It wasn't easy to distinguish one side from the other. And so they said, What side are you guys on? And naturally, he said, Oh, yeah, we're on your side. So in verse six, it says, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites died. So you see what just happened there. It's kind of funny a funny little addendum there. Apparently the men of Ephraim had a little bit of an accent and they couldn't pronounce certain words right. They had a little bit of a lisp. And so the men of Gilead said, say Shibboleth. Sibboleth. No, say Shibboleth. Sibboleth. Right? They couldn't say it. It's sort of like if somebody comes up to you today and says, hey, um, we're thinking about going to the uh, Piliwap Fair. The what? The Pew Pew Wap Fair, right? Right. People who are for the region, they don't know how to say our names right. Puyallup and Stillaguamish and all, you know, all these weird words, right? And so that's sort of what's going on there. Another example, one of my good buddies growing up, he was a Mexican kid. His name was Oscar. And it wasn't until much later in life that I realized my best friend, Oscar, was illegal. But he, he, he had a pretty distinct accent. And, and me and Oscar, we were both kind of into cars at the time. And, and he said to me one day, he said, he said, Yol, he couldn't pronounce his J's. He says, Yol, I want to buy a Chevy Nova. I said, what? He says, I want to buy a Chevy Nova. And I said, I said, what, Oscar? And he said, you know what, Chevrolet, a Chevrolet Nova. He wanted a Chevy Nova. And, you know, and, and he was kind of self-conscious sometimes about his accent, right? He, he couldn't hide it. And it's sort of the same idea here. The Gileadites, they couldn't, or the, the Ephraimites, they couldn't hide from the Gileadites who they really were. And so once it was determined, it says that they put to death 42,000 men that day. Now that's sad, isn't it? Isn't that a sad close to the chapter? Jephthah may have killed more of his own countrymen than he did the Ammonites. And jealousy and envy, they're ugly things, aren't they? So that's it. That's chapters 11 and 12. What, what, what lessons can we apply from this bizarre chapter of Scripture? What, what can we take home with us? First, five things I want to touch real quick. First, your past doesn't matter, right? Your heritage, your, your family tree, your family of origin, it doesn't matter to the Lord. And maybe you've done 23andMe or Ancestry.com and found out that all of your distant relatives were convicts and criminals, a bunch of crooks and thieves and liars. That doesn't stop the Lord from using you. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for willing hearts. This man, Jephthah, he was born... He was born of a prostitute. He was an outcast. But do you know who else descended from a prostitute? King David, King Solomon, and by extension, Jesus, right? You are not disqualified to serve the Lord because of where you came from. You're not disqualified to serve the Lord because you have kind of a sketchy past, right? That's not what the Lord is looking at. Second, it seems in scripture like the Lord is inclined towards the underdog, doesn't it? It seems like so often in scripture that's the case. The Lord doesn't use the most likely candidates to accomplish his will. We see here he uses the illegitimate son of this Gileadite. Jesus, when he's selecting his disciples, he certainly doesn't pick the most accomplished men, does he? He doesn't pick the most learned scholars of the day. He picks zealots, terrorists, insurrectionists. He picks, he picks fishermen. I don't know if you've hung around fishermen. They're usually a little coarse. I don't mean guys who are out catching trout on the weekends. I mean like professional fishermen, right? Sailors. You know, he he picks tax collectors. He picks kind of from the bottom of the barrel, it seems. The Lord uses the most unlikely candidates to accomplish his will. And I don't know about you guys, but that gives me hope. That gives me a, a, a reason to move forward. Thirdly, it seems like God is biased towards people who take action. He's biased towards people who are willing to get up and get things done. Now, this guy that the Lord chose here, he's probably not who most of us would have chosen. He's coarse. He's rough. He seems like he's a little bit of an odd dude. But the Lord, it seems, would rather use odd, coarse men who are willing to get things done than civilized guys who knew how to use the right fork at a fancy dinner, right? He seems like he's willing to use these other guys because they're willing to take action versus guys who (coughs) who are polite and cultured but refuse to take action, who don't want to get anything done on behalf of the Lord. Fourthly, it's the Holy Spirit empowering us that makes us effective in ministry. Remember, Jephthah, he was a mighty warrior, but he didn't find great victory until the Holy Spirit came upon him, until he was filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And listen, you might have gifts, you might have talents, you might have abilities, but the only way to be effective in the service of the Lord is to be operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? If you're using your talents for the Lord, but you're not doing so in a spirit-filled way, there's no lasting, eternal, spiritual effect. There's no power behind it. If you want to make an impact for the kingdom of God, you have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, lastly, be wise in the commitments you make. Particularly, I think, the commitments to the Lord. Don't foolishly make promises that you're gonna have to renege on later, right? Be cautious in making vows or promises to the people around you and to the Lord. And then once you make your vow... Do what you said you're going to do. Keep your word, even if it hurts, even if it costs you something. As we close, we're going to come to the Lord's table this morning and we're going to share in communion together. As as the worship team comes back up in a moment, we're going to continue in worship and when you're ready, you can come forward and you can take the elements of communion, you know, the, the juice and the bread, And as we take that, we remember the body of Jesus, that it was broken. Remember his blood that was shed on our behalf. It was the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed to redeem us of our past. It was his blood that was shed to forgive us of our sins and our failures. His body was broken and his blood was shed to forgive our shortcomings and our broken promises. So we share in communion together and remember that he died, he shed his blood so that we can find new life in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again we just confess that this is a... This is a passage that's difficult for us to understand. Lord, and we pray that you would, um, that you would take these principles that we see and that you would help us apply them to our lives, Lord. And that we would just walk uprightly before you and that we would be men and women who, who keep our word and who are bold and who are empowered by your spirit, Lord. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.